This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. We'll be talking with uh, a professor from uh, from uh, Hopkins. We're going to talk about his new book on China and potentially the danger zone with China. Um, but before that, we'll get Professor Siegel's comments. Uh, Professor, we have a little bit of pressure here to end the week. Uh, we had the Fed minutes. We have rates moving. Any thoughts on what's happening? Yeah, well, uh, you're, you're, you're certainly right. Um, rates have uh, almost hit 3% um, uh, this afternoon. Um, and, uh, uh, it's, it's certainly pressuring the markets with hawkish Fed talk and a little bit stronger economy. The retail sales were a little stronger than anticipated. Um, let, let me tell you what I think are the big, big issues right now. Uh, the big overriding issue is still the total disconnect between workers employed and gained uh, payroll or uh, through the household survey and the GDP numbers. It is true that some recent GDP uh, calculations have shown that we may get a positive for the second quarter. Um, but even then, uh, the productivity collapse of the first half of this year is unprecedented in any way you measure it. And it appears to be continuing in this quarter. Uh, GDP estimates are only about a half percent so far. We're only halfway through the quarter. Um, and yet, of course, we all know we have very strong July uh, payrolls. Um, so, again, we have to address what is going on there. Why are we having this terrible disconnect between uh, workers and, and uh, GDP? Um, second thing, uh, in terms of data, uh, the most important thing next week is going to be probably Powell's talk. Um, in Jackson Hole a week from today. Uh, there's not really much new data coming out. Um, w- what is he going to talk about? Is he going to give us a hint of 50 to 75? Is he going to tell us what he's looking at with respect to uh, how he's going to judge uh, the next uh, predictor hike? Uh, my feeling is as we've stopped the downturn in the economy, it's sort of stabilizing at a low level. Uh, unemployment claims have leveled off. Um, we've got some mixed readings on the purchasing managers indexes of the various regions. Um, uh, I, I don't see a rapid deterioration such as I feared in June. Um, uh, now, that withstanding, uh, we're going to get the money supply next Tuesday for the month of, um, of July. Uh, it looks like another very sluggish uh, 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 increase, if at all, um, from the preliminary data on deposits that we get on a weekly basis. And it looks like, again, the money supply has absolutely stopped growing in 2022. We don't want it to decline. We don't want it to really stay even unchanged anymore. That would squeeze liquidity uh, out of the economy. Um, I don't see that happening. And if the Fed only re- raises another 100 basis points, right now we're at a Fed fund of 233, um, in, uh, the January Fed funds for the month of December is 351. So that's about one and a quarter increase. My feeling is we only need one uh, percentage point. Um, we don't need one and a quarter percentage point. Um, and uh, but the data will evolve to tell us what direction to go. 
I saw some headlines that, that that you made this week on CNBC um, saying you thought the bottoms were in for the market. Is that still, you know, I think ultimately the earlier lows will hold uh, throughout this year. Is 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 a is a rising rate like the the long end moving higher one of the key risks? Yeah, that seems to be what's trading today. Well, well, well certainly, uh, I, I I I think so. I mean, the, the uh, you know overreaction of the Fed and and the rising rates. Um, but look at how it really, uh, if you take a look at the chart of the S&P, it's, you know, a little wave and a dip. We, we haven't seen a sharp sell-off even with the 10-year reaching 3%, which I, I think shows the undervalue, uh, underlying strength of the economy. I mean, certainly earnings are not as robust as last year, but they're holding up. I mean, we had good from Walmart, not as good from Target. If you go up and down the line, this is very much in line with historical beats. Uh, that we've had, um, you know, a negative GDP growth in the first half uh, with uh, basically stagnant earnings, getting rid of excess inventories, positioning yourself for the second, uh, you know, six months uh, out of the year, which if we get an imp- productivity improvement, will actually bring an increase in profits. So I think as long as we don't have a recession, which I just don't now see, uh, we may have at a technical one, we'll see later on in the first half of the year. Um, but um, uh, that we should see earnings stabilize or growing, and uh, unlikely they, that the, those lows uh, of June 13th will be will be broached on the downside. One final question on inflation: um, You were sort of certainly spot on calling the inflation this whole cycle. You now think it's it's coming less pressured. Um, you know, when, when, when the money supply exploded, you talked about like a 25% cumulative above trend increase. How far through that 25% increase do you think we've gotten so far and how much yeah. more to go? Like there's, there's some questions on like, will inflation ever get back to 2% in people's minds yeah. now? And I'm, I'm curious how far you think we are in yeah, the, in the it's cycle. That's a very good question. As I said, I actually think we had a 12, over 10% inflation last year measured properly and accurately. Again, understating the housing inflation, which overstates it later on, will delay the increase in the rate. Uh, yeah, we had 25 increase in percent in money, and then we had another 12 or 15% increase in 21. Now we're stopping it dead cold. Don't forget, 5 to 6% would be in, uh, consistent with 2% uh, inflation. Um, so I think we've got more on the official statistics. And the question is how long we drag it out, probably four or 5% for a couple of years on the official statistic. Although on the actual data, I can see it moving down to two and 3%, again, only being the wage part that'll produce some residual inflation going forward. Housing is already moving down, talking to people that are doing transactions saying prices are actually lower today than they were three months ago. Even rental agreements are nowhere near as hot as they were three months ago. Again, will not be reflected in official statistics, but I think that that represents a more true look at forward-looking inflation. So we had much more backward-looking inflation, and we're going to have much less forward-looking inflation. We still, you know, maybe we've got 10% to go on the official statistics, that would give us a maybe 20, 25% increase, depending on how long we hold the money supply here uh, all together to get through the same percentage change in, in money as we would in prices, less the real growth in the economy. Professor, I uh, hope you're doing well. And we'll thanks for the comments. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you. Now I'm going to bring the conversation to today's guest. We'll be talking with Hal Brands, who is the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and the co-author new book, Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China. Hal, thanks for joining us on Behind the Markets. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you come to study China? Give us your your expertise, how you you came to be, be writing this book. So I'm a historian by trade, and I came up studying the Cold War and the history of U.S. foreign policy and great power relations more broadly. And so I've done a lot of work on that in the past. Uh, I've also had a foot in the foreign policy world for a decade or so, whether 
uh, working in government or consulting with departments and agencies or just kind of generally involving myself in debates about where the United States is going in the world and what some of the major challenges uh, out there for American policymakers are. And so that combination of, of factors got me interested in the U.S.-China rivalry uh, seven or eight years ago, I, I think, and it's something that I've followed uh, ever since. And so I've, I've done more and more writing that has tried to count for that issue simply because China represents the greatest uh, challenge that the United States is going to face for the foreseeable future and, and perhaps uh, beyond. And so I did a previous book that was called The Twilight Struggle, uh, which tried to understand how the United States had approached long-term competition with a major authoritarian power during the Cold War and what that could teach us about how to think about the China and Russia problems today. Uh, and then I got interested in doing the, the present book that you mentioned, uh, Danger Zone, in a conversation with uh, a colleague and my co-author, Mike Beckley. Uh, and Mike uh, is an IR scholar. He's also a China specialist, having lived there and, and studied the place extensively. And we realized that we were thinking about the problem in similar ways, which I assume that we'll get into. And, and so he and I first wrote an article about this maybe a year and a half ago, and it blossomed into uh, a larger book project, which has just now come to fruition. Well, be, be, I think we're spending most of the time on China, but uh, just since you mentioned the Cold War and, and, and also the, the challenges with, with Russia today, where, were you surprised by, by Russia going into Ukraine? Um, is, is, how do you see that situation evolving over the course of the, the coming months? I, I've heard conversations that this could be a 10 to 15 year drag that where I've heard things saying they're going to lower tensions pretty soon. Um, how, how do you see, where do you see we are in, in that conflict? Well, I think the natural trajectory is probably toward a longer war, um, simply because uh, both sides are pursuing relatively maximalist aims. So the Ukrainians have said they want to liberate all of the territory that Russia has occupied, not just since February 24th, but going back to 2014. And so that, that includes all of eastern Ukraine, as well as Crimea. Uh, Vladimir Putin is, is still talking uh, in maximalist terms that appears to be aiming for uh, a victory that would basically leave Ukraine as kind of an economically unviable rump state that, that Russia could dominate. So there's not a lot of overlap between those positions. And I don't think that either side has yet concluded that it has run out of options on the battlefield. The Ukrainians think that they're going to be in a position to start retaking territory from the Russians uh, fairly soon. And in fact, uh, their offensive in the South appears to be uh, underway. The Russians still think that, that the time may be on their side, that if they can make it to winter and, and put the squeeze on Europe from an energy perspective, then maybe they can drive some wedges between Ukraine and its foreign supporters and, and thereby isolate uh, Kiev and, and perhaps bring the war to a close on Russia's terms. Uh, and so I would expect the conflict to drag on for some time. So the the, the challenge here is that I don't think the United States can particularly afford to have a high-intensity war drag on for years and years and years just because there are so many other challenges the United States has to deal with, namely China, and tensions are heating up in the Western Pacific. And the longer the war between Russia and Ukraine goes on, the higher the chances that what's already a proxy war between Russia and the United States will eventually escalate into some sort of sharper confrontation. And, and so I'm sure U.S. policymakers are trying to think of ways of hastening the conclusion of the war without leaving Ukraine and, and the lurch. And, and what exactly that looks like is, is difficult to come up with. But that's the basic dilemma for U.S. policy right now. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting how, if, if anybody else gets dragged into it, I mean, I, I saw some headlines of China doing drills with Russia, and, and maybe that's a good segue back to the, the main topic today of, of China. Um, so I guess if from your studies of history, give us the big picture of of, of why you think the current dynamic, um, the, the, the current situation, the economic situation of China, their, their sort of status in the world, where, where does that lead to thinking there could be a conflict? So the basic thrust of the book is that China is more dangerous than you think because it has more problems than you think. Uh, so in, in a way, we're arguing against the thesis that 
China is going to be the next number one superpower, that it is going to effortlessly zip, effortlessly zip past the United States to economic and military primacy on a global scale. Uh, we don't think that that's going to happen. We think that we're actually dealing with a China whose power is peaking, particularly its economic power. Uh, and so it may actually become more aggressive over the course of this decade as it worries that it has limited time to achieve some of the objectives that Xi Jinping and other Chinese leaders have set out for the, the Chinese nation. And so a lot of this hinges on an assessment of, of two trends. And so the first trend would be economic stagnation. And the basic argument here is that China is looking at a long period of slow growth uh, in the future because a lot of the advantages that enabled the Chinese economic miracle of, say, 1978 to 2008 uh, are no longer operating. And in some cases, they've become headwinds. And so, so China used to have a population that was primed for productivity because you had a lot of working age people with relatively few kids and relatively few elderly parents to care for. That, that's obviously going to reverse in the coming years. China is going to face something like a demographic implosion that's going to leave it with far fewer productive workers and far more senior citizens uh, for those workers to look after. The Chinese economic reform and liberalization agenda has been uh, moribund for at least a decade uh, at this point, uh, and that's been a source of stagnation as, as well. You've seen evidence of a growing debt problem. Uh, you've seen evidence of declining uh, productivity. You've seen a lot of telltale signs of economic stagnation. And the political system has become less conducive to rapid growth as well, because now you have a leader, Xi Jinping, who is prioritizing tight political control over the economy for a variety of reasons, as opposed to the breakneck growth that constituted the CCP's primary claim to legitimacy for a generation after Tiananmen Square. And so as a result of, of those and other factors, the new normal for China is going to be one of much more sluggish economic growth. In fact, we're already seeing it. And so Chinese growth was well upwards of 10% on the eve of the global financial crisis a decade and a half ago. It was about 6% according to official statistics, which are almost certainly inflated on the eve of COVID. And of course, it has struggled to recover to even that level since then. The other, the other trend, which I'll just mention briefly, is that at the same time that China is facing a degree of economic stagnation, it's also facing a greater degree of strategic encirclement. Uh, and so this, this often happens when, when countries see their power rise dramatically, they start acting more assertively, but that has the effect of scaring and annoying neighbors and other great powers who then start working together to contain the new kid on the block. And, and that's exactly what's happening in, in China's case. China has managed to alienate the vast majority of the world's uh, advanced democracies. It has managed to make rivals of a number of, of countries on its frontier. And so basically, wherever China looks at this point, there are countries or coalitions of countries that are pushing back against its influence, whether that's the Quad or the AUKUS partnership between the US, the UK and Australia, or India and South Asia, or, or anywhere else you, you look. And so for all of these reasons, China's long-term trajectory looks a bit more uncertain now, which may mean that the Chinese are, are more willing to take risks and use coercion in the short term when they have a very good window of opportunity to achieve some gains. Yeah, one of the uh, the demographic story, you know, that they're going to age faster than anyone, um, you know, with that one child possibly being being uh, a negative impact there, has 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 been talked about a lot. One of the the guys I was uh, an economist I was just with was talking about Asia consumer growth, and that and I don't know the exact time from, but maybe over the next five ten years, you could still see a like 300 million people go to the middle class from a below middle class background and that, that still creates a opportunity for investment in some ways um if, if that is true and, and people and they still eat with good relations with the rest of the world trying to get access to that growing middle class do you see that as as true um and then this is a, a further pressure beyond that short-term phase or, or would you even be worried about that type of number uh, as the development in the short run well, it, it depends on sort of the time frame that we're talking about. And, and so a lot of demographic projections, or some of them at least, indicate that over a very long time frame, say to the end of the century, uh, China's population might decline by as much as half uh, from where it is now. But even over a much shorter time frame, say over 15 years, 
you know, you're looking at the addition of tens of millions of senior citizens and the subtraction of tens of millions of working age individuals. And, and so, yes, the Chinese population has gotten significantly wealthier on a per capita basis, and that creates a lot of, of business opportunity and a lot of investment opportunity. But it, it's still not clear that China has figured out how to escape the middle income trap. And there's just not a whole lot of historical precedent for countries that age as quickly as China is going to age in the coming years, being able to maintain robust growth. And the other thing we have to keep in mind is that you know, what, what counts as robust growth from a U.S. perspective is not the same thing that counts as robust growth from a Chinese perspective because the sources of legitimacy in, in the Chinese system are different than they are uh, in the United States. The, the Chinese uh, Communist Party is obviously a deeply authoritarian actor and an increasingly totalitarian actor now, but one of the CCP's claims to legitimacy for many years uh, after Tiananmen in particular was that it presided over truly stunning economic growth that was making most Chinese citizens very optimistic about the future. Uh, and so if you see even a retreat from that level of growth and that level of optimism, that could spell trouble uh, from a political perspective. Now, we, we are not forecasting that the CCP is going to be overthrown, that you're going to have a revolution in China. Th these things tend to be very unpredictable until they happen. What we are forecasting is that the CCP is going to become more repressive, more authoritarian as it deals with this declining uh, font of political legitimacy, and that that in turn will have sort of a negative synergy with, with already difficult economic trends. And so you'll get an increasingly sluggish, increasingly authoritarian China in the years ahead. We're talking with Hal Brandt, author of The Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China, a uh, professor at John Hopkins University School. How uh, uh, when, when in, in one of the things, what, what made China successful during their big growth phase is they were exporting to the rest of the world. And even today, they have a record trade surplus uh, with the rest of the world. And, and you could say, um, is that a sign of strength or weakness that they're not strong enough to do more imports? Or how do you view, you know, what do you, do you think the, we started with Russia, do you think Russia has has scared them in any way of what would happen if they, they did take action in, in Taiwan? I think it has certainly given the Chinese some lessons to learn. Now, the, the two situations are not necessarily comparable. And my hunch is that uh, top-level Chinese leaders simply don't believe that the United States and its allies would do to China what they have done to Russia in the economic and financial spheres. They, they do not believe that the United States would sanction China's central bank, for instance, or go after China's foreign reserves just because China is, is such a, a central actor to the health of the overall global economy in a way that Russia really is, is not. The, the Chinese economy is in many ways a harder sanctions target than Russia is because China is less dependent on commodity exports, for, for instance and is just much more globally integrated and, and more resilient. That said, there has been a lot of talk about potentially slapping economic, financial, technological sanctions on China if it uses force against Taiwan or simply resorts to, resorts to a higher level of foreign policy coercion. And so I'm sure Chinese policymakers are closely studying what the United States and uh, other democratic countries have, have done to Russia in this context for clues about what might happen in such a contingency. And we, all, we can also see that China is taking steps that would have the effect, and I assume they also have the intention, of making China less vulnerable to economic sanctions, whether that's you know, stockpiling certain uh, inputs for uh, the, the tech sector, whether it is um, thinking about ways of rendering China less successful, less susceptible to a naval blockade or something like that. You can see a lot of this happening in the Chinese system right now. Um, in terms of export dependence, it is both a, a strength and a weakness. It obviously means that China is deeply implicated in the economic well-being of other societies around the world, and it potentially makes other countries more reluctant to challenge China because of, for instance, supply chain dependencies or import dependencies in dealing with Beijing. 
at the same time, it also creates some, some real problems for China. And in one sense, as you mentioned, that's an indicator of the fact that, that China has not yet succeeded in transitioning to a more consumer-driven uh, economy. On the other hand, it means that China's uh, trade patterns and China's economic well-being would be far more catastrophically disrupted by, uh, heaven forbid, a, a war with the United States than the United States' would. So, so China's trade patterns would be disrupted in a very direct and very tangible way. The same thing would happen to an extent to the United States and, and certainly to its allies in East Asia, but not to the same degree. There was some work done a few years ago indicating that in a protracted conflict between the United States and China, uh, the United States would basically get a really bad economic cold and China would get pneumonia. The United States GDP would contract by five to 10%. China's would contract by 25 to 35%, which is obviously far more catastrophic. Now, now there are question marks here involving uh, the role of uh, semiconductor exports from Taiwan, for instance, and, and things like that. But in general, if a conflict were to happen, I, I think this would primarily be a source of vulnerability for China. Yeah, there, there's a lot of places where we can go in this conversation. Um, in, in terms of the, you know, you think about the COVID dynamic and COVID zero and, and, and all the supply chain issues that came from the shutdowns. And, and you do see people going away from trying to, I mean, it seems like the move towards reshoring or nearshoring or anything going away from China, that seems to be in place. Uh, is that something that you think will lead to sort of longer term, less productivity, more inflation, all those things as, as people try to confront this ultimate uh, maybe situation we have? I, I do think that a certain amount of the inflation that we are facing today and that we will likely face in the future is geopolitically driven, just as the very low inflation of the post-Cold War era was partially geopolitically driven. And so the fact that you had economic and political barriers come down after the end of the Cold War meant that there were new sources of relatively cheap labor, for instance, and that had uh, a disinflationary impact on Western economies. As, as you look at more of a separation, not a complete separation, but a partial separation occurring between uh, China and the United States, potentially China and other advanced democracies, that, that's going to have the opposite uh, effect. In terms of you know, American companies or uh, European companies or East Asian companies that are thinking of getting out of China or winding down operations in China, it, it's certainly happening. And I think that one impact of the war in Ukraine is that it has made it irresponsible for any boardroom, any C-suite, not to take seriously the question of what would happen to our business and what would we do if China were to invade Taiwan or if there was some other major military dust-up between uh, the United States and, and China. And so certainly that risk factor has become much more pronounced, and I assume that's having an impact on the calculations of CEOs. At the same time, you know, corporate America's uh, exposure to China is so big that it's sometimes hard for firms or sectors to know what to do about the problem. It's, it's easy to say that you would rather do friendshoring, or you would rather um, put your, uh, you know, route your supply chain through India or Vietnam or some other place. It's often harder to do that, particularly at an affordable cost. And so my expectation is that economic uh, disintegration or deintegration between the United States and China will be something that happens kind of slowly and, and fitfully until a crisis occurs, and then it could happen very, very fast. Well, this crisis occurring is going to be what we continue to talk about on the second half of the show. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking about his new book, The Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China. Uh, and he also wrote a new uh, or relatively recent op-ed in The Wall Street Journal on the coming war with Taiwan. Uh, and so, Hal, I, I, if, if there were to be a war, um, you know, we just had Pelosi visit Taiwan. That caused all sorts of stirs. You saw China sort of show some military drills. Is is your view what they showed uh, a symbol of how they would actually take the confrontation? Like, is it more about a blockade of cutting Taiwan off from the rest of the world, uh, sort of show of force there? Uh, or do you think they actually would invade? How, how do you think things would play out if there were to be an actual uh, war here? 
Well, the PLA rehearses and plans for all of these things, everything from uh, a blockade to uh, missile and air barrages against Taiwan to a full-on invasion, because I assume that the Chinese leadership wants to have a variety of options at its disposal if it decides to use force or feels that it has to use force to achieve unification with uh, Taiwan. What was being demonstrated um, in the exercises earlier this month was mostly kind of a, a quarantine capability. And, and so a combination of air and sea operations as well as missile strikes that would have the objective of sealing Taiwan off from resupply. And so this was why the fact that the, the PLA was, was exercising on all sides of Taiwan was important. It, it was sending the signal that we can take away your strategic depth in the Western Pacific. We can even uh, seal off the ports on the eastern side of the island from resupply, uh, for instance. That said, uh, in contrast to, to some other folks whose opinions I respect very much, I actually don't think the blockade is the most likely scenario because I don't think that'll work. I don't think it will be successful in getting Taiwan to give up its independence. And the problem with a blockade is that it gives the United States and other countries that are interested in the survival of Taiwanese democracy time to react. It gives the United States time to position its assets as it wants to position them, to think about how it wants to respond, uh, and then basically fight in the way the United States fights best. Now, it would be different if the Chinese were to try something bigger and, and bolder and, and, in fact, more brutal. And this would be essentially um, a, a full-on invasion that begins with a surprise missile barrage and airstrikes on targets across Taiwan, obviously, but also throughout the Western Pacific, basically meant to cripple American air and naval power in the region render the United States incapable of responding militarily for a while, perhaps a few days, perhaps a few weeks, and thereby create uh, an opening that China can race through to send an invasion fleet uh, and airborne forces across the strait uh, and achieve a sufficient lodgment on Taiwan, basically get enough troops on shore and get them advancing such that Taiwan basically has no point, no, no uh, alternative but capitulation. And that by the time the United States brings additional submarines and aircraft and aircraft carriers and ships to, to bear in the region, the war is essentially over. I, th I think that is, um, if I were a PLA planner, that's the scenario that I would be most attracted to because I would worry that anything else comes with a really unacceptably high risk of failure. Now, I want to be very clear, the scenario that I just laid out comes with extraordinary risks as well. And, and so if China starts a war with a surprise missile and air attack on U.S. bases in the Western Pacific, it's going to kill hundreds or thousands of Americans on the first day of the conflict, and it has thus guaranteed a long destructive war with the United States. At least that, that's my opinion. But Chinese leaders may not see it that way. Right? They, they may think that if the United States suffers dramatic reverses in the opening days of the fighting, it will give up uh, and allow Taiwan to be swallowed up. So this is the scenario that I worry a lot about. Uh, and, and so a lot of it hinges on things like how much warning time would the United States and Taiwan have before operations began? Would we be able to get uh, our assets in a good position to respond or not? These are the sort of things that would have a heavy bearing on whether a Chinese attack succeeded or failed. There's some, I think there's some good questions on, like, who else is coming to the defense of Taiwan besides the U.S.? Like, why does the U.S. care um, so much if, 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 uh, to come to the defense? I mean, what's your sense on how much the U.S. cares versus how much China cares on, on defending Taiwan? Well, so the U.S. is not technically pledged to come to Taiwan's defense. There's sort of an ambiguous U.S. defense or security commitment to Taiwan embodied in the Taiwan Relations Act and a variety of other official statements that have come from the U.S. government over the past uh, 40, 42, 43 years. 
uh, explaining the nature of the U.S. relationship with Taiwan. But it's not an Article 5 treaty guarantee in the way that it is if you're talking about the NATO countries or Japan or something like that. It, it's a different, more ambiguous relationship. American policymakers have increasingly come to the view, I think, that it would be really, really bad if China were to take Taiwan for a variety of, of reasons. Um, one of them is technological, given Taiwan's role as uh, the, the place that manufactures upward of 90% of the world's most advanced uh, semiconductors. Part of it is ideological. The United States has never really liked it that much when big, bad, authoritarian bullies knock over democracies that happen to be situated uh, next door. Uh, part of it's ideological in the sense that the uh, existence of a democratic government on Taiwan is a very effective rebuke to the CCP's argument that Chinese culture is somehow incompatible with political freedom and democracy. But I think the, the major issue is essentially strategic and, and military. Taiwan is at the center of what uh, strategists often call the first island chain. So basically the line of positions running really from uh, Alaska and maybe South Korea down to Japan to the Philippines and so on and so forth. Uh, what all of those things have in common is that they are either U.S. territory or the territory of U.S. partners and allies, and so they constitute a, a pretty strong barrier to Chinese naval expansion and influence into the open Pacific, into the Pacific beyond that first island chain. And so the fear is that if China were able to subdue Taiwan and incorporate Taiwan into its own defense posture, it would rupture the first island chain and give China better options for coercing a lot of countries up and down the Western Pacific. It would become much harder for the United States to operate in the East China Sea or the South China Sea. It would become much more difficult for the United States to defend Japan or the Philippines. The, the Japanese in particular worry that if Taiwan went down, it would make it nearly impossible to defend some of the southernmost relatively small islands that Japan has uh, in the Western Pacific. And it would even do things like uh, give China far better options for uh, submarine warfare. And so one of the challenges that China faces right now is that the waters off its coast are relatively shallow. And uh, the U.S. Navy and allied navies have them covered relatively well. And so we're pretty good at tracking Chinese submarines when they leave port. And China's ballistic missile submarines their missiles can't even reach the United States from the waters off of China's coast. They've got to get out into the open Pacific uh, to do that. And so that's hard to do right now. It will be much easier if the PLA had access to the deep water uh, ports on the eastern side of Taiwan. And so for a variety of kind of big strategic reasons and more mundane military reasons, losing Taiwan would really deal a sharp blow to the U.S. position in the Western Pacific. There is an interesting question, though, uh, the other question you asked about who, who would be with us. So if, if China attacked Taiwan and the United States decided to come to Taiwan's aid, and that would not be an easy decision, would we have any allies on our side? I think the answer is yes. I think we would almost certainly have the Japanese and the Australians on our side. Uh, the Japanese, for the reasons that I just mentioned, have, have come to view the survival of uh, a free Taiwan as nearly an existential issue for Japan. The Australians have also signaled that they would likely be in a conflict with us. Um, but there are bigger question marks around a number of other countries. Um, if we're talking about Singapore, for instance, which is the home of uh, U.S. logistical facilities and, and uh, a variety of military assets, it would probably depend on how the war started. If it was a case of unprovoked Chinese aggression, my hunch is that Singapore would, would be, be in it and at least allow the United States to use facilities there. If not, it might be more complicated. There are questions around uh, South Korea and the Philippines and India as, as well. I, I doubt that the United States would be fighting alone unless it were widely seen that the United States had somehow provoked the conflict. But there is far more uncertainty about who would make up the coalition then there was, say, during the Cold War, when we were talking about the potential for a Soviet thrust into Western Europe, and you assumed that a multilateral alliance, NATO, would act more or less in unison to resist it.
We're talking with Hal Brandt about his book, The Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China, how, uh, as well as his op-ed on the war, a coming war with Taiwan, potentially. Um, if you were to sort of counsel our president and, and leaders, what would you be suggesting today? How would you say, what, are, what should our policies be? Is this strategic ambiguity, positive, negative? How would you try to simmer tensions if, if simmering tensions is the goal? I think it's it's complicated because reducing tensions is a goal, but it's not the only goal, right? Other goals might include preserving the U.S. position in the Western Pacific, and that might require running a certain level of tension with Beijing. We have multiple goals, and they don't always go together. And so that's the first reason this is complicated. When it comes to the issue of strategic ambiguity versus strategic clarity, this basically refers to the debate over whether the United States should persist in its current policy where we have an ambiguous position on whether and under what circumstances we would help Taiwan if it were attacked, or whether we should move to a position of strategic clarity where we would simply say and issue as a firm declaration of policy, the United States will defend Taiwan if it is attacked by Japan. I actually think that a move towards strategic clarity uh, is probably the wrong move right now. And it's also a little bit beside the, the point. It's beside the point because I think that the Chinese have to assume when they do military planning that the United States would aid Taiwan in some way if it were attacked. I think it would just be very, very naive to, to start from any other planning assumption. And, and so I, I don't think it's a matter of convincing China that it would have to face the United States if it attacked Taiwan. So it's a little bit beside the point in, in that sense. It's also beside the point in that the major question is not whether we would try to defend Taiwan, it's whether we could do so effectively. It's really a capabilities question as much as a commitment question. And the United States just needs to be moving a lot faster to strengthen its capabilities to defend Taiwan by, by doing things like uh, fielding additional anti-ship missiles and sea mines and other cheap, relatively plentiful capabilities that can basically turn the Taiwan Strait into a death trap for invading forces by, by pushing the Taiwanese to really move fast on some of the military reforms that they have undertaken uh, and, and through a variety of, of other steps. That's where we really need to be focused. Uh, and this leads me to, to the final thing, which is why I, th I think a shift to strategic clarity could actually be counterproductive because China is operating from a mixture of offensive and defensive motives or offensive motives and insecurity in the Taiwan Strait. On, on, on the one hand, China clearly has revisionist ambitions to take Taiwan in a way that would be violent and aggressive and disruptive to the status quo. So I want to be very clear on that. On the other hand, China worries and not without reason that politically Taiwan is separating itself from the mainland more and more every year because you have more and more Taiwanese citizens who consider themselves as making up part of a Taiwanese nationality rather than a Chinese uh, nationality because support for unification with the mainland is, is very, very, very low uh, and has been for some time. Uh, and because Taiwan has had some success in expanding its diplomatic relationships with key countries like the United States and Japan, even as it's lost diplomatic representation in other mostly smaller countries. And, and so this is one of the reasons why Beijing reacted uh, so fiercely to Speaker Pelosi's visit earlier this month. It was seen as a symbol that the United States was distancing itself uh, from our one China policy. Uh, and so Beijing kind of felt like it, it had both the need and the opportunity to demonstrate its displeasure. And, and so this is all a long way of saying that we need to be really careful about doing things that would look to Beijing like they were dramatically changing the status quo, a relatively fragile status quo in the Taiwan Strait, because that's the sort of thing that might actually encourage Beijing to use force even sooner than it would like to, to prevent an erosion of its position there, and to take advantage of the increasingly powerful military capabilities that China has at its disposal. And so unless strategic clarity, you know, buys us some extra deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Beijing, and I'm not convinced that it does, I think it could actually have the effect of provoking a crisis or provoking a conflict that we are seeking to avoid.
Yeah, this latest episode I felt like was a very strange one from from somebody who's not versed in the political politics as much as you are in, in any in any scene. Um, like it, it was like if China really didn't want Pelosi to go, the the thing that they coming out very publicly telling her they don't want her to go was like the last thing you could do to like she had to go after all that conversation. Like, was it all to you? Any any comment on that? Did it seem like a little bit of theater there, or was was that they were working behind the scenes and then ultimately brought it all publicly. Well, I, I think that China, Chinese officials often do not perceive or at least do not acknowledge the extent to which the things that happen to them that they don't like are actually responses to their own behavior. Right. And so the reason that the United States has opened up the aperture on its diplomatic, economic and military relationship with Taiwan over the past three, four, five, six years is largely because China has actually been disrupting the status quo in the strait by putting lots of military pressure, by putting increasing political pressure and other forms of pressure on Taiwan. And, and so what the United States is trying to do, in a sense, is to maintain this status quo that has prevailed for a very long time. That The Chinese don't see it that way because they come at it from a different perspective. And so I, I think there was sort of genuine concern that Pelosi was showing up. I think there was a degree of genuine bewilderment that, you know, it seemed like the president of the United States, uh, who's also the leader of the Democratic Party, didn't want this to happen. And yet the Speaker of the House, who is the second most powerful person in that party, was doing it anyways. Uh, and, and the reason I think there was probably some genuine befuddlement over that is that there was genuine befuddlement over that uh, among many of our democratic allies, right? And so it's not, it's not necessarily a question of an authoritarian system not understanding the United States. A lot of countries that are democratic and friendly to the United States had a little bit of trouble understanding why the president simply couldn't or wouldn't tell or ask Nancy Pelosi not to go to Taiwan. Now, I suspect the reason was that the president believed that she was going to go one way or another and so it made no sense to use his political capital with her on, on that issue. But, but nonetheless, I think there was a degree of that as well. And then there was a degree of, of opportunism. And, and so these were the exercises that um, Beijing rolled out were clearly not things that were designed in the course of a week or, or a few days. They were clearly things that the PLA had been wanting to do and been wanting to rehearse for months or probably years. And, and so it's not so much a question of, you know, was it something that China wanted or not? I, I think China would have preferred that Pelosi not go to Taiwan. But once it happened, there was certainly a willingness to use the crisis for instrumental purposes. Yeah, it, it definitely felt like they, they wanted to respond to that uh, in that way. Um, and as, as you think, we've got about four or five minutes left. As, as you think through the key issues, anything on on. Is, there, is Taiwan the real place where there's likely to be a conflict with China? There, there were some talks with, you know, North Korea being a, an area of, of conflict, and 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 that could be a provocation, provocation that that caused some other bigger global events. Any any other place you want to bring some attention to from your research in the book and other big picture views on on the danger zone? Well, unfortunately, there are a variety of areas where conflict is possible. I, I think the Taiwan Strait is by far. Uh, the likeliest place for it to happen because it is the area where China could use force with the highest prospect of success in a conflict involving the United States. That's just a function of geography. And, and so in a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, China would have um, far greater utility from assets that are stationed on the mainland than it would in a conflict over the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea or uh, over the South China Sea, for instance, where the distances from China's shores are, are simply greater and it would be more difficult for the PLA to operate effectively. But, but nonetheless, there are, some other, um, there are some other areas of dispute. And so one that is often talked about is what I just mentioned, the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea. These are islands whose ownership is disputed between Japan and China. Japan uh, essentially occupies and administers the island, but China the islands, but China does not recognize that. And so China has been trying to squeeze Japan out through various forms of coercion for over uh, a decade now. There is the potential for conflict in the South China Sea, where China has dramatically expanded its presence uh, and its military capabilities 
over the past 15 years, but, but still has some things it would like to achieve vis-a-vis U.S. allies like the Philippines at places like Scarborough Shoal. For instance, there, there's a danger of conflict on the border with India, uh, where China has provoked a number of confrontations in recent years. The, the biggest one uh, happened in 2020, where you had a skirmish between Chinese and Indian soldiers very high in the Himalayas that resulted in a couple dozen deaths. And then there's always the prospect that you mentioned, which is that you get a war on the Korean Peninsula that is not instigated by the United States or by China, but leads to, for instance, a collapse of the North Korean state and a situation where both the United States or a U.S. ally, South Korea, and then China are trying to sort out the, the, the remnants of that situation. They come into conflict. All of these are, are possibilities, but I do think Taiwan is the likeliest scenario. And even uh, as, as I look at all the things that you've written and published in the past, any other things as, as you think about the big, big picture worldviews, what else are you working on? What else are you studying? Well, I pay a lot of attention to the war in Ukraine, as a lot of folks do right now, because while we're talking about the potential for war in the Pacific, uh, we have an actual war going on in, in Ukraine. And as I mentioned, I think that the danger of escalation there is non-trivial. Um, and then there's also a big crisis potentially brewing in the Persian Gulf. And so if the United States and Iran are unable to come to a deal that would revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, you could actually have a third region that is uh, the subject of intense crisis, perhaps co- perhaps conflict in the coming months or years. So unfortunately, it's, it's a very nasty world right now. The only consolation is that gives people like me a lot of interesting things to think about. Well, I am very glad we connected for the show. Hopefully, uh, as things develop and you have more to say, we would love to, to have you back. Absolutely. I'd love to come back. Well, Hal, thanks for joining us on Behind the Markets. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. You can listen to us every week on our Behind the Markets podcast. Follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. I'm Jeremy D. Schwartz on Twitter. Uh, and how also how brands on Twitter, uh, you can find us all. Thanks for tuning in uh, and, and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.